When we, when we think about Peter in Scripture, it is easy to uh, relate to him on a lot of levels uh, if we are one of those people that are constantly giving to uh, athletes' mouths. You know, that's where we put our foot in our mouth because we're foolish. Uh, we're quick to speak and slower to think. And uh, certainly that becomes a bit of Peter's. I'm always certainly sort of Captain Impetuous. He's known for kind of jumping quick into something. Uh, God uses people like that, and we're encouraged by that, of course. Some of the people he uses, for instance, of course, are people like, you know, well, people like Peter because he'd be the only guy to step out of the, out of the boat. I mean, everybody else is too responsible, too adult, too thinking to really get to that place where they're like, well, that's nuts. I would never do something like that. Uh, so Peter becomes, in essence, a hero for many of us in regards to the stepping of faith. But the thing that he seems to be known most for often is this very thing. As a matter of fact, we get the term Peter out from this. You know, when someone says, oh, you really petered out. And the idea of that was is that you really started going strong, but somewhere down the line you really just stopped. Now there's good news in regards to Peter. He will be restored. That's a spoiler for you alert. But... There is this aspect here, and this is a really, really great week for it. And so forgive me, I, I probably no read to even ask for forgiveness about the seriousness of what we're looking at. Because what we're really looking at is the biography of a backslide. We're looking at what it took for Peter to wind up in that place where he actually denies that he even knew Jesus. To the point where we read the word anathema. Anathema means he actually called down a curse upon himself. I mean, imagine Peter saying, if I really do know this Jesus, if I've ever even really met this guy, may I go to hell for it. I mean, talk about crazy words. And this was the same guy that on that same night, only hours before, would swear that he was willing to die for him. And if we were to go back and chronicle those moments in our lives of greatest regret since coming to know Christ, those moments where, those prayerfully few moments where we kind of almost feel like we've woken up from some kind of crazy intoxication of some sort and we come out of it and go how in the world did I get here how did I how could I possibly there's no possible way I would have done this well it's a handful of steps and I want to see that in, in Peter's life and so uh, we're going to go right to prayer <clears throat> but we're probably going to pray a couple times in the midst of this to be honest uh, because there's something really really hard in this because I recognize as a pastor, it's part of my responsibility to, in essence, eschew information to you, to give you the, the truth of God's Word. And it is my heart, my passion, for you to do more than just know Scripture, but for you to be able to use that Scripture, uh, to be able to be equipped with that Scripture, because it's the one thing God promises will never return void that you use. The Gospel, the power of salvation of those who would believe in the Word of God for for equipping and challenging and correcting, for the man or woman of God to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That says an awful lot. He never promised that in regards to anything else. All of our schools, and not to bag on any of that, all of the stuff that we teach that's been taught in regards to philosophies and argumentations and logic and, 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 uh, and you know, all these arguments that we sort of learn and uh, apologetics that seem to be such a sweeping craze. He never promised any of that wouldn't return void. But he did promise that his word would never return void. Never means never. But the problem, like Paul would say, is he doesn't want to be one of those people that having after administered those very things that he knows are going to work, be disqualified himself. 
I mean, pardon me for quoting him, but it was Shakespeare that essence said it about a person who was giving advice. That was the context. It was a person who was giving advice he personally wasn't heeding. And he said, in essence, never to trust a chef whose fingers had never actually been basted in the very sauce for which he was unwilling to taste. In other words, it would be one thing if we could administer the cure, but then die ourselves. How horribly tragic that would be. Jesus, if you remember, at the end of Matthew 5 and 7 through 7, we read it as the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of it all, he says, you know, there's only going to be two groups of people at the end of this message. And he compares them to the one thing that we even sing children's songs about, building a house. He says, on one side, there's going to be those that are going to build a house on the sand. The other side, there are going to be those who build their house on the rock. Now, we, we actually sing the song and do our hand motions and the whole bit and splat and it's cute and all, but we, do we realize what Jesus is saying is either you're going to listen to this and do it or you're not. And if you're going to listen to it and know it but not do it, you're like the person building your house in the sand. Oh, it's still a house built, but it will not endure those trials, those storms that are, that are coming. And some of us know that well because the storms have already hit. Because on the other side, there are going to be those of you who do this. You're going, to, you're going to hear this, you're going to do it, and in doing it, you'll be like those who built their house on the rock. It wasn't just build your house on the rock. It was this is what it looks like to build your house on the rock. Do what I say. James would say in James 1, don't just hear the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. I love that about James. James is one of those guys that has no problem crawling right into your face. He says, a guy that <clears throat> reads the word and walks away and doesn't do what it says, it's like somebody who looks at their face in the mirror and then walks away and, in a simple sense, forgets what he looks like. He forgets who he is. So somehow, as a Christian, if I'm reading his word and not doing what it says, taking the exhortations and the warnings to heart, I forget who I am. And forgetting who I am in Christ is a really miserable thing when we come to church because... We won't want to come to church where people are celebrating because we'll feel like a phony. We'll feel like it's phony. Because after all, how could people celebrate victory? I certainly don't have it. So I want to pray. And as we pray, we'll dive into our text. We'll back up, by the way, all the way to Matthew 16 to start because we'll see that the core goes there and then we'll build from there. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, I pray your word would be like the angel that wrestled with, with Jacob, Lord, at Penuel, where the struggle and the challenge was there until ultimately Jacob would surrender. He would tap out. And Lord, we don't want to fight your word. We don't want you to have to, in essence, dislocate our hip for us to actually learn how to have a walk with you, ironic as that is. So, Lord, give us a heart of surrender to you. We live in a world that quickly surrenders to temptation, quickly surrenders to any suggestion of the enemy, but still has somehow in all of that surrender has found strength mustered somewhere to try to fight the conviction of your Holy Spirit. And don't let that be the case here in this house. In this house today, profoundly minister, please. In every word, let it be perfectly from you. So, Lord, speak through me. Immerse me that you would be seen. Come upon me that you would use me, Lord, as your tool now. And open our hearts, Lord, to receive. Rip open our hearts if you have to. 
that we would see what we need to see in this text. Please, Lord. Captivate us, but Lord, do more than just draw us in. Do the surgery you need to do. And let us walk out of here different people, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, this is in essence the rest of the chapter, 57 to 75 of chapter 26, the biography of a backslide. But we have to go back to the core of it all, and that goes all the way back to Matthew 16. And Matthew 16, and if you're there, in verse 21 it tells us, after Jesus had been confirmed as the Messiah, it said, from that time on Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Well, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Three verses later in verse 24, then Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke would put in Luke 9.23 in the countertext daily. Now, this is what it really is in the core of it. There are the things of God and the things of men. And the things of God, to be honest, I can make it a simple word, the cross. It's the cross. The cross is the place of absolute surrender, but what we learn is we come to Christ as our Savior when we recognize we have to actually embrace His cross, the one that paid for our sins, but as we become His disciples and we learn to make Him Lord, we learn that He tells us we go from His cross to our own. A place of denying ourselves. A place of actually not making it about us. We get out of the center of our universe. And that becomes the core that if that does not happen, we are in a crash course for a hard fall. Oh, if this could actually be the center of my doctrine in daily life. If this is what Christianity would really look like, the world would be intimidated and in awe and see God for who he really is. But this is not Peter's modus operandum. Therefore, uh, interesting, by the way, from this point on, we know the next chapter, Jesus is going to ascend the hill. He's going to have that board meeting with Moses and Eliyahu, with Elijah. And funny, from that point on, there seems to be this common argument listed in Scripture of who would be greatest. The idea of, I'm assuming, that the argument is not us sitting around the room and going, oh, no, 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 Dan Chung would be the greatest, and Dan going, oh, no, 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 Bruno would be greatest. I kind of get the idea the argument over who would be greatest would be, oh, no, I'm going to be the greatest. And then, you know, and then you've got Marcia going, oh, I'm the greatest of all time. And it's, it's, you know, it's, that seems to be the way that kind of plays out, which is, isn't that but the opposite of Matthew 16, 21 through 24, where he says, look, it, it's about my cross, and then it's about... Your cross. What part of that boasts about how great you are? Well, Peter tends to be at the forefront of a lot of that type of argument. We'll see that later in some sense. And now he's on a direct course to a hard descent. But I've got to be honest. Here I am trying to tell you that this needs to be more than information. And of course, I've prepared a study for this. This is in the text. And then how do I not demonstrate it? And I've got to be honest, I sat alone with the Lord on this. And this was not an easy sit. And I actually had to ask myself, and I, I really believe it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me and saying, do I really not want to fall? I mean, do I really not want to fall? How, how serious of a concern is that to me? How important is that? And how far would I go and how hard would I go to ensure that I don't? 
Because either this is going to be an intellectual assessment or it's going to be my directive for life. So I want to start with this before we even dive into our text. And, and we will actually pick it up for a moment in chapter 26 from this point on as we start to see this biography unfold of this backslide. But I want to pray one more time. Because let me just ask, I mean, if we were honest, have we gotten ambivalent, apathetic about sin and worldliness? A place that used to bother us. Things that used to really annoy us. Now, I'm not talking about the world around us. It's amazing how that could still irritate us because, after all, that's the thing we can't change before this starts to change. And, we, you know, we, we, we look at all that and, of course, we, you know, we hear the F word used in every manner of grammar. And, and, and you know, that kind of thing sort of is around us and we're kind of walking through a stew of just soupy nastiness. But, but what about the worldliness in us? The stuff that used to bother us when we, when we were like, oh, that, man, I, that once was enough. That's way too much. And I, just, I, don't, I don't want that anywhere near me. And now there are things that are quicker to embrace. And the reason I say that is, again, I, do, I, do I really want to pray that my appetite for sin and apathy of hurting God would be absolutely vanquished or not? And, and I want to pray that for me. And you can say amen or not to that. But I just want to say, as, I, as you holding me accountable, that, that's my heart's desire. I don't want to be in a place where I look at sin and just go, yeah, whatever, mildly bad, when I know that it's deadly. So pray with me, would you please, or at least humor me and honor me to do so for the moment. God, I, I really, I want to want to not sin. And I don't want to be apathetic, numb, indifferent, ambivalent, ambiguous about any of that. I want sin to be as nasty as it is in my eyes as it is in yours. And I want such a distaste for it, such a disinterest in it. God, that that this would mean something to me. That, that the idea of falling, the idea of sliding back, the idea of embracing a lifestyle that hurts your heart would be so abhorrent to me, such an abomination in my heart and mind and eyes that I would do anything that is necessary to avoid it. I believe that that is the move of your Holy Spirit in my life. That I would see myself as a foreigner in another world, not just because here I am in Britain, but Lord, because here I am not of this world, but a citizen of heaven, to reflect the place to where I belong and the one to whom I belong, who is in every way opposite of the world I see around me. So Lord, I want to look at this with the fresh Eyes that crave, that hunger, that passionately desire like the last breath of air in my being to be what you call me to be. And to look at this, to say, Lord, put this, let this be the staunch warning of how to step away from this and never embrace this like I should in regards to the way that Peter lived, but to actually take its warnings and to embrace your exhortations of how to walk away from something like this from the beginning. Vanquish 
any appetite I would have for sin and replace it with a romantic passion to be intimate with you, God, in all of the right ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your, if you have nothing else for humoring me. There are seven basic points that are going to be given in regards to this, but it starts going back to verse 31. We're in chapter 26, verse 31. And Jesus now is sitting down with his boys, and he's had his supper with them, the Pesach, the Passover. And Jesus says in verse 31, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter, notice, answers him. Peter said to him, Even if all will be made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. In Luke 22, verse 31, in our countertext, Jesus will actually develop and tell us, Simon, Simon, Satan has indeed asked for you that he would stiff you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. He didn't say, I've prayed for you that you wouldn't fail. But I prayed for you that even in the fall, your faith wouldn't fail. When you've returned to me, strengthen your brothers. In both of those, there's this promise that there is going to be this moment of abject failure, but there's also going to this moment on the other side where he's like, but I'm going to be waiting for you. And, and I just want you to get, please hear this, that this starts with Peter stepping up. And the beginning of any backslide always starts the same, and that is self-focus. That's always how it begins is somewhere in all of this, we start, to, we start to put ourselves back in the middle of the universe, of our own universe. We become keenly aware of us. We become the center of our own emphasis. Now, I'm watching the person I've given my life over to follow for three and a half years look at me, just about to have a mental breakdown, stare me in the face and look and say, I'm going to die tonight. And you're all going to leave me. And not a one of us looks and goes, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine the pain you're feeling. The fact that we couldn't be empathetic. The reason we couldn't be empathetic or even sympathetic to Jesus was because all we were thinking of was ourselves. And once we start with that, that self-focus, so that's the, the, the next steps start to happen. Now look, at, I don't know what makes you think the most about yourself. But be careful, because it is the first step to this backslide. Now understand, a backslide is different from just taking from a sin. You take a sin, and what that means is you've done something stupid and you've gotten to that place. But a backslide is where you've now become a lifestyle of it. You've done something to the point where you're actually now living away from Christ. But you can't get there without sinning in the, in the process. But this is how it starts. I start getting consumed with me. And once I started getting consumed with me, I look at everything very differently. That's my second thing would be a self-comparison. Now, look at We have a tendency to go one or two routes in regards to the self-focus. Some get self-focused and what they start thinking is how much greater they are than others. And some start getting self-focused and in their self-comparison, they start thinking about how much lesser they are than others. They're still the same. It's still self-focus. So on one side, we condemn others. Why aren't you? How come you, you, know, I'm, you start keeping score? Look at how many times I've done this. Look at how many times you haven't. Or look at how many times you've done it and I don't do this at all. Or on the other side of it, we condemn ourselves. I'll never be like that. 
I will never be. I've watched amazing men in the ministry step down because they got too consumed with themselves. In some cases, of course, because they thought they were all that when they weren't all that. Jesus is all that. But on the other side of that, they actually thought they weren't any of that. And the bottom line is, even though, as Paul would say, nothing in me that is of myself any good dwells, he didn't actually see himself just as himself. He always saw himself in light of the Christ. And that makes a big difference because no matter how much rubbish that I am as a human being, I am the most loved rubbish in the eternity because my God died on a cross for me. And if I don't remember that, then what happens is I start going to this weird place where I just implode. So I either explode on you or I'll implode on me. But in both cases, it's a very violent thing. Just it's in my heart. So Peter starts by looking and he's like, and and we see in the other texts, no, Lord, no way will I ever fail you. Then he looks around and he says, yeah, but even if all of these other bozos fail you, and I can actually see that happening. There's a person in the room that I think couldn't happen. Well, except me. In other words, Peter's already exalted himself above everybody else in the room and telling him, you know, yeah, I know you're quoting Scripture here, but this doesn't apply to me. You got me, Jesus. You're cool with that. Now understand, this is the way it gets with us. Is Once we start focusing on ourselves, it is amazing how what that does to us. We go from self-focus to self-comparison. And now I'm either condemning myself and I'm miserable and I'm horrible and there's really, you know, there's, what purpose is there for me in this life? Because you understand, if the enemy gets you far enough in that he wants to kill something, he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus taught us that in John 10. Well, where does he start? By stealing you away from intimacy with God. And then killing, well, why is it kill and destroy? If he killed you, didn't he already destroy you? Well, clearly then it must not be you. But the idea is if he could steal you away from intimacy with God and then kill your relationship with God in any manner, then he can use you to destroy others. Because let's face it, dead things hurt other things that are living. And I've watched this around us. People that that seem to have an intimate walk with God, I can't tell you whether they did or not, but watch them really tweak on their walk with God and then affect the other people around them. It's like they were stolen away and then they were destroying the things around them in doing so. And it all starts with, wow, me. I become, it's like I woke up and I started thinking about me again. Where a moment ago it was just, isn't it amazing who you are, God? Then we get to verse 40. So our first two are self-focus and then self-comparison. In verse 40, Jesus came to his disciples. Remember, he sits and he, he tells them, you know, sit here and pray. He's pulled now from the, the, the eleven, because Judas is gone. He's pulled from the eleven, three, Peter, James, and John. There's Peter right there in the midst of it. And he tells him, you guys, I need you guys praying and watching with me. And he goes and he falls apart on him. He, fall, he goes about a stone's throw away, falls on his face and asks God, if there's any other way than this cross, please don't let me do this. And in verse 40 it says, then he came to his disciples and he found them asleep. And notice, In verse 40, who he goes to? He goes to Peter. The same guy, I remind you, who said, man, yeah, they're all going to leave you, but but not me. And Jesus says to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray. Lest you enter temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing. You can see Jesus saying, look at, I don't doubt your sincerity. I don't doubt that you mean what you say. And you feel in it. I don't doubt that this is just lip service. 
you were actually, the problem that you have here is that actually I know you better than you. You were actually just convinced that the artillery and the strength and the force of your conviction in this moment of your emotion is actually strong enough to carry you for the rest of this. And that's what you're missing. Because I just realized that's a great ignition, but it, it is, that's no full gas tank without emotion. Well, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh, well, that's weak. And you realize your body doesn't have the strength to fulfill your emotional intent on this. I go from self-focus to self-comparison. The third thing is then I go to self-gratification. And you know what your body always seems to say at a moment like that? Ease up. And that's what I do. I ease up. Because I started thinking about me. And then I started looking at you. And I started looking at the world. And I started looking at what's called Christianity. Or if, boy, if I'm really out there, then I just have to go to the internet and find somebody that's more whack job than I am. And then somewhere in all of that, then I start looking and going, you know, I can ease up a little bit on this. Now, that may not be a conscious thing, but it sure is a real thing. And we forget when we talk about running the race, the word for race there is the word marathonas. We get the word marathon from it. It is not the word for a sprint. And we've watched people that have been fantastic sprinters. But life is not a sprint. Even if you live 50 years, it's still a marathon. And somewhere when I start focusing on me and then I start looking around because now I'm looking through the world through my, all about me, I start easing up. My quiet time isn't really a quiet time anymore. Where I used to love feasting on the Word, now I'll kind of, if anything, pop out a handful of verses, think I've done it. The music that used to bring me such joy and I'd stirred my spirit now I get a little bit more excited by things that are more worldly. And because of this, as I ease up and I'm spiritually slacking, hungers arise in me that must be met. And I become more keenly aware of things like how lonely I could be, how untreated or unjust the world appears to be how I feel like I haven't gotten the right end of the deal. I start thinking about how somebody else seems to have gotten more than me. And you know what I'm doing with all of those things? I'm, in essence, creating an arsenal to justify and to validate sin. Because with each of these things, I start to look at them and I realize that it just makes sin look less... To be honest, it looks less like a threat and more like an endowment now. I kind of look and like, I wouldn't be that bad. I mean, look at that person seems to be getting away with it, and that person, and look at what this person's got. Look at all this stuff they're experiencing. What's the big deal? Because my eyes aren't on Christ, for me to start risking things that hurt him don't look the same, because I don't see the look on his face, if you will, when I'm actually testing these things out, where if I were staring at my Lord, I wouldn't even contemplate those things, because I know they could bring him pain. I look, but yeah, 
you know, I know it's sin, but it's not as much sin to me because after all, we see these extenuating circumstances. When I become more and more aware of them, I become less conscious of Jesus' warnings about entering into temptation and about the weakness of my flesh because that's what he was telling him here. It's like, Peter, you cannot afford to nod off right now because nodding off at this moment, you are going to yield to temptation. You do know how weak your flesh is, right? Or you do know that your flesh is, is weak? And even though your conviction and your spirit is strong on this, I'm sorry to tell you, your flesh is going to win if you nod off. If you lay back, and that's the term that is used for what it's worth when you found him asleep. Katiudo. The idea there to ease up. So it starts with me thinking about me. And then I compare me to everything else around me. And then I start gratifying myself in whatever way I ease up. Because in the marathon, there will always be walls you hit if you've ever run a marathon. And to be honest, it's the one thing that you need to train yourself more for than anything else. That place where your body says, yeah, you can slow down now. Yeah, you can, you know, this is far enough. This is good enough. Come on. Especially when we all started at the gate and everyone seemed like they had all, you know, they had the best shoes and the best, those kooky dolphin shorts, you know, that kind of crawl up way too high for any human being to... It's just wrong. Anyways, and, you know, and, and, and all that, and we just had the stuff that absorbed sweat, and we're just gonna, we have a number, because that's cool enough. And, and, you know, we saw people next to us, and they were huffing like a bull, ready to take this thing off, and we, we started heading out there. And then we kind of somewhere down the line, because the great thing about a race is it's all about your personal best, right? It's about looking forward and getting that way, because the moment you look anywhere from there, unless you're saying both, chances are the people are going to catch up. And you're just huffing it, but somewhere down the line you started looking, and you realize that all of a sudden the people you were running with, some of them are... You know, like some of them are kind of jogging, but slower than they were. Some are power walking. Some are just sitting down and picking daisies. And you're kind of looking and going, you know what? I'm a lot farther than a lot of these people right now. And you're not running your personal best anymore because you're just running faster than other people. And we just back off. And, you know, this Christian friend's getting drunk, this Christian friend's having sex, this Christian friend may be pregnant, this Christian friend's playing with all kinds of things they know that God finds as an abomination. But it's okay because, you know, they found a couple articles somewhere with someone that they've never met on, you know, online. And then, of course, that somehow validated it. And all of this is happening. And then there's me. You know, it's like, really? My sins are, I mean, let's compare here. Things are good, right? So I can ease up a little bit because I'm still kind of better than, than the crew I'm running with. But the problem with our race is, it's still not your personal best. But I want to remind you, it all started about thinking about you. Because if you didn't think about you, you'd be keeping your eyes on the finish line. And if you kept your eyes on the finish line, you'd be pushing it. You start thinking about you, it's easy to start looking around at that moment. And then as I start looking around, I start realizing, why am I trying so hard? See, I'm either, I'm either I'm giving everything to the one that I really, really want to hear say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he never just said, you know, well done, you were, you know, you were ahead of most. It's pretty good. Well done. You know, some of us in this room, I'll be honest, we grew up with people telling us, even if you got the highest mark, that we still didn't fulfill our potential. 
And they were disappointed. And we're like, what's the deal? I dominated. They're like, it doesn't matter. You dominated. The issue is you didn't push yourself. You'll never see what could be done because you're surrounding yourself with people who just don't even want to run. So Jesus looks and he says, hey, you ease up. What are you, Peter, what are you doing? What? What? You know, Peter, really? This quick? I warned you that, that you really weren't as strong as you thought you were, and you'd think that it wouldn't be this quick. Verse 51. Then suddenly, Jesus is now being arrested. Judas has stepped up. He's kissing Jesus to show this amazing betrayal. And, and then there's something startling in all of that because that Judas could get that close to Jesus. Not that Jesus didn't blast them, but that Judas had gotten that callous, that numb to think that he could do anything that he wanted in any particular way. And somehow in it, there wouldn't be any form of repercussion in it. And there he is, he's going over and he, and he gets right in Jesus' face and does the classic, intimate, not that kind of, you know, Romantic kiss, the kiss that you do in a Mediterranean country that says, I love you and I'm close to you and you are, the, you are my dear close friend or family member. And, and he goes right in for that and you could see the emptiness and the coldness and the callousness of Judas in that. And there are parts where as I look at that, I want to look at that moment and I want to, I want to want to vomit. Does that make sense? I want to look at that and have it really turn my stomach. I want to look at that and go, that is awful. Not just intellectually, but every part of my spirit look at that and go, that is awful. And then see myself in that moment when my heart gets callous. And as, as again, I'm looking at myself and I'm comparing and then I'm, I'm, I'm gratifying, I'm satiating. And then we get here that as it was the case in verse 51, suddenly then one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. In John 19, in the countertext, in verse 10, we read that it was Simon Peter, the guy's name was Melchus, and that it was his right ear. We get all that information in a verse. And I get this, that once I start getting in that place where I'm easing up, self-gratifying, well, then the next thing is going to be self-assertion. That's number four. And self-assertion now is that now that I act without praying, and now that I'm well aware of my hungers because I've eased up on my, eye, on my eyes on God, but now I'm easing up on those things that in essence were walls to keep me from foolish choices, now the choices become a little bit closer. They become within my reach, and now I just start lunging. I start lunging for stupid things I would never have done because I don't see the situation the same anymore. In this moment, I forget about my sovereign Lord and I just lunge. I throw caution and conviction and even reason to the wind because I know that cause has effect. But at this point now, because the more I contemplate my, uh, my hungers, the more that I feel like it has to be met and I get consumed in this hunger and then I gorge myself on it. And that could be vengeance, that could be anger, that could be lust, that could be pride, that could be foolishness of whatever, it could be greed. It could just be self-condemnation and you just get consumed with it. And that will lead to self-harm because he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Sooner or later, somewhere you're going to hurt someone. It's going to be you. 
It's going to be others or it's going to be both. So I go from viewing myself, focusing on myself, to comparing myself, to gratifying myself and easing up and then asserting myself into it. Verse 57. And those who laid hold of Jesus then led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed at a distance to the high priest's courtyard and he went in and sat down with the servants to see the end. There's so much in this verse. At the beginning here, it tells us in verse 58 that Peter followed him at a distance and this becomes my next step. We know this, that the moment I get into self-assertion, I'm going to sin. The moment I lunge, it's going to be sin. And let's face it, all a sin is, like any lust, we think of lust as simply sexual. What it isn't, God has given within every one of us base appetites. There are appetites, there is no appetite you have that's a sin in and of itself. To be wanted, to be important, that for companionship, even the physical relationship, none of those are in and of themselves wrong. The problem is with every appetite God's given, He's given a menu for that appetite. And the moment you want to order off the menu is the moment that you're starting to contemplate lust and sin. That's all it is. Whatever that is, what God gives is enough. Actually, it's always going to be more than enough until I start looking off the menu. But the moment I start lunging, I'm, the reason I'm lunging is because somewhere I'm not focusing on the Lord to provide because it tells us no good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84 tells me that. And somewhere now in all of that, I'm, now, like, I'm so consumed with this hunger, but because I'm focusing on me, I'm listening to the enemy. And you've probably learned this by now. The moment you start granting the enemy, the audience, he'll give you the whole performance. He's just waiting. You know those kind of people. They start talking. They go onto a train and they're kind of maybe talking to themselves at first, but then they start looking around and the moment they catch eyes with someone, well, then it starts to happen. Man, now the whole thing's going. And now it's like the performance is on. And you can see the enemy, he's just talking. He's on the train and you on that train because it's life or it's he's on the trail where you guys are all running and me too. And he's like kind of talking. He's kind of running and kind of trying to talk with you. And the moment you start listening to him for a moment, you know he's going to start slowing down. Because, you know, and then sooner or later he's going to be like, and then you're standing and talking with him. And isn't that kind of interesting? Because isn't that how Psalm 1 begins? But the person who's blessed who doesn't do that? I challenge you to see the progression or the digression because it talks about walk and then stand and then sit. Well, in all of that, understand here in this, now we start getting to this place. We're aware that we've sinned. We've done something stupid. And Jesus rebukes Peter for it. I mean, let's face it. What Jesus didn't want was for one of his own because they're calling him a radical and they're calling him dangerous. And now you've got this guy who's trying to fillet people like a fish and he's boning someone's ear. And so he whacks off a guy's ear. And you can see Jesus going, what? you really think if I was in trouble, I'd need you to do this? I could call down angels, you know. And we already have record of what angels can do. And with all due respect, Rocky, you're still not an angel. And then you can see him looking at that. And Peter now has been rebuked. So what do you do? When you know you've blown it. Because at this point, something, something huge is going to have to happen. Please hear me in this. I become keenly aware for the moment of God's displeasure. That sin displeases him. And I have two responses. And this is where sin becomes a backslide or sin becomes repentance. And either at this moment, I'm going to seek to reconcile or I'm going to retreat. Those are my options. 
Now, understand, the Holy Spirit will always, always, His whole motivation, it's really simple, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His whole ministry is to make you intimate with God. That's the whole ministry. You know why He convicts you of sin? Because it's in between you and God. But He won't just say, look at you, you miserable, rotten jerk, look what you did. Because that's the enemy's job. See, the differences between conviction and condemnation isn't an awareness of sin, it's what you're going to do with it. The conviction of the Holy Spirit says, that was wrong, we both know, not, know that, confess it, take it to the Lord, and then let Him wash it away from you so you could be intimate again. Because again, the ministry is to make you intimate with God. So because of that, whatever He's going to do is to get you closer. And if something's in between, He's going to let you know. On the other side of it, the enemy says, that was a horrible, rotten sin now, and God's probably really angry, so you really don't want to bother Him, let Him cool off for a bit. And what His whole thing is to use it to get you farther away. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to get you intimate with God. The ministry of the enemy, if I can use that horrible term, and in this case would be, or the term in a horrible way, would be to pull you away from God, and you are now stuck with this sin, and you have two choices. Are you going to retreat, or are you going to repent? Now this is what Scripture says for what it's worth. It tells us in Proverbs 28:13 that whoever seeks to cover their sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will find, will have mercy. First John, most of you are familiar with First John 1:9. It says, "If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just. Hear me, hear me, not just to forgive our sin, but to cleanse us." from all unrighteousness. It isn't just about God going, yeah, okay, let's overlook that. He's going to wash that away. The idea of forgive, by the way, is afiemi, means to lift up and to throw away and to, to forsake forever. That's very, very different from just the way we look at forgiveness where we're like, I'm sorry, okay. But somewhere inside, that thing is still there. It's like we covered ourselves in filth. God hosed us off, pulled us away from it, and they made it look like it never happened. I get why then it tells us from Psalm 103, verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so He has removed our transgressions from us. Now, I do love the fact that they're infinite in their direction. So from infinitely one side to infinitely the other, that's the whole point. It tells us for what it's worth, and it's worth an awful lot, in Isaiah 43:25, that He is the one who blots out our transgressions. And you've heard me develop that before about how when a person is born into a town, you're signed into a register, and then you're married, that's in the register, the children, that's in your register, to blot it out as if you never existed in that town. And you are the town, sin used to be a citizen there, but what happened is the moment you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you've laid it down, He's blotted out as if sin never ever even came and lived or grew or matured inside of you, but He yanked it out as if it was never there. Hey, sin can still come knocking, but it ain't a citizen of you anymore. So it's actually only going to go in by your visa. You grant that. It tells us this as well, by the way, in Isaiah 43:25. He doesn't just say he blots out our transgressions, but he also says, "And I will not remember your sins." So of all the things that God knows, which is everything, there are things God chooses not to know. And if God chooses not to remember your sin anymore, why do you want to remind him? If you've ever been in a relationship and you want to remind someone of a past hurt that should have been worked out and it was, that's a foolish thing to do. 
But God, the reason why he chooses to remember it no more, well, to be honest, is because he knows that if he were to remember it, it would get in the way of your intimacy with him. And he doesn't want that. So it says in Jeremiah 50, 20, The iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none found. And the sins of Judah shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. And you get the idea, he goes, look at Israel and Judah, because they were divided at them. He makes clear, he's like, my example to them is going to be to everyone to whom I preserve. And that is, I don't just forgive your sin, I cast it away and I abandon it, and then I choose to remember it no more, because if I, didn't, if I remembered it, I wouldn't be abandoning it. But unfortunately, that's not where Peter's going to go. And it tells us that he followed Jesus at a distance. So this is the way it looks, beloved. We go from this self-assertion, we've jumped into whatever the sin is for the moment to try to satiate ourselves. And as we do that, because we're focusing on a hunger and we just think, we get to this place where we think we're going to go crazy unless we do it. And now we know we must be crazy, to be honest, because if we think that the only thing that's going to satisfy us is sin at that moment, we know we're crazy. Whatever the sin is. But at that point, then we become aware. And you know what happens? Is you, you feel filthy. And the enemy says, that filth, by the way, makes you unapproachable to God. The Holy Spirit says, that filth is why you need to go to God. And you're debating within you right now, what do you do? And at that moment, let's say that that was something that happened... Some people, that happens on the way to church. And then you're like, I can't go to church. I can't go to church like this. I'm going to walk in and everyone's, it's, it's like you rolled around in dog poo. I can't walk into church because if I walk into church, everyone's going to smell it on me. They'll be like, who that? Who that? And then you're going to go, oh, I see. You know, and it's like, well, who do you think's telling you that? Do you think that God's telling you that? He's like, let's deal with it. Let's get this dealt with. And then let's fellowship. I get why he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, it says that we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, purifies us, purges from us all unrighteousness. But this is what Peter does instead, as he starts to distance himself. And the more he starts to distance himself, now he becomes a sentinel. He becomes an observer where he used to be a partaker. Jesus is experiencing, and let's face it, Jesus is experiencing a really rotten thing. We'll develop the whole court case thing next week. But as it's the case, Peter now is watching from a distance what he used to take, a play, take part in. He used to be there standing next to Jesus. But now at this point, that where he used to get his hands dirty in, that where he used to be able to rub shoulders with Jesus, and he used to have to be able to speak to God in a whisper because he was right next to him going, Now he's at this place where he actually kind of watches from a distance. But the problem is, if you're going to try to distance yourself from God and fellowship with Him and those that walk with Him, well, you're going to find yourself in fellowship somewhere else. And that becomes a problem. So here he is at this point, and he's following at a distance. But as he's following at a distance, what that tells me is Jesus is still moving. Peter's still moving, but not at the same pace. So we could make it look like we have a walk because we're still taking steps, but we're clearly taking less steps because we're trying to make sure Jesus can get a little bit farther from us right now. We're at this particular moment, aware of our sin. One thing we've seen Jesus do is there was nobody too filthy for Jesus not to cleanse because the ultimate filth in the sight of that culture would have been the leper who fell at Jesus' feet. 
the ultimate wretched, if you will, rotting that comes from sin could not be a problem for Jesus because he raised the dead when even Lazarus stinketh. So here I am dealing with his sin. I'm looking at that sin and at that moment, what I'd love for us to hear, what if we really listen to the Holy Spirit, is he'd say, run, 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 run to Jesus and run to his feet right now and get down there and just say, Jesus, please take this off of me. I don't want to carry this anymore. That's what we need to be. But at this particular moment, Peter's distancing himself. He's following at a distance. And you know what happens at that moment? The last place you want to be is church. And the last place you want to be is where people are praising. And the last place you want to be is where something seems really great. So, where do you go from there? Look at that same verse, verse 58. The sixth of the seven steps here, if you will. It doesn't just say Peter followed him at a distance into the high priest's courtyard. But it says he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Here's the problem. These were not Jesus' servants. These were the high priest's servants. These were the, pre- these were the servants of the enemy, if you will, at this moment of Jesus. And when you distance yourself from fellowship with Jesus, you will find yourself in the camp of the enemy. Here's the problem. We go from, if you will, self-assertion, self-separation, number six, to self-insertion. And now we insert ourselves into a different crew. A crew that we know is going to be intolerant to our faith. A crew that we know mocks the one we follow. A crew that we know would applaud at anything that appears to be victory over our God. A crew that we know openly celebrates antagonism against the one that we call our Savior. And Peter there has sat down with him. It tells us for what it's worth in Luke chapter 22, verse 55, that he sat down because they had kindled a fire. Because of that, he sat down to warm himself. So you know what happens? There you were at church one day, raising your hand, and somewhere in all of that, you've, you've, you've been veering, you've eased up, you've focused on yourself, and now you're thinking, you deserve a break today. And so there you are, and you're focusing on yourself, and you're easing up, and then all that, now you've lunged into sin, you don't want to be in fellowship, so now I'm going to go check out that party thing. I'm going to go to that club that I would never have gone to otherwise. But what you're doing is you're in there looking for something that you think could benefit you. For Peter, it was a fire, but I don't know what that fire is for you when you go to that place. That fire, to be honest, Maybe just someone. Someone that you look and go, ooh, that person's fine. And now the fire. There's your fire. That fire might be that you're just kind of looking for something that will entertain your head. That fire might be just something that you feel like a place where you belong. Or that fire could be just something where you realize now you are, and you are just, you know, the enemy's, he, look at, he can't create anything, but he sure can imitate. His job is a counterfeiter because he can't create, so he's got to wait for something else to come out, and then he's got to figure out how to counterfeit it so that you can try to get all the good things from God without God. And that's what he's pitching. So Peter's there sitting at the fire warming himself. He's trying to make himself comfortable, but somewhere in all of this, he's also trying to camouflage himself because what Peter really doesn't want to do is be seen. And you know that. Peter's been walking too close with Jesus for too long to recognize that he's going to pop into some place. And he does not want people to see him there. 
There was a drummer that I worked with back in the States for a period of time. Praise God, he was no one that was a regular for us, but he was somebody that in essence tried out for a band that we were um, at that point looking for a drummer and kind of uh, saw him for a while. And uh, he was, you know, he was really singing a good song, pitching a good pitch. But there was this particular restaurant in a place called Santa Maria. And they had a thing that's called Santa Maria tri-tip. In essence, there was the part that butchers used to throw away, but when you grow up poor, you eat any part of the meat, and it's a good part. So, you know, they were cooking this thing, they barbecued it, and that place happened to be right across from an adult club. And one day I had taken a couple of the guys that were in the band with me at the point, and we had sat down at this particular place, they had an outside, the place to eat, by the way, you know, and sat on the outdoor, outdoor area, and there we were sitting, and we, the guy that was trying out his drummer, Interestingly enough, he wasn't with us that particular day and he couldn't make church and it was after church and he couldn't make church. He had some big event that he had to do. And there, as we were sitting, and you probably know where this story is going to go, we're sitting there eating and out from that adult club across the street comes the drummer. And there he was, and it's like if you could see the look on his face, because it wasn't just me, the guy that was the pastor, but it was also everybody else that was in the band but him. And he knows that he had told them, he knew that he had told them that he was actually at some other event and couldn't make church. Well, now we see what the event was. And you realize, I couldn't imagine that guy for a moment could have felt that peace in that place because somewhere in that, it's still, I don't mean, regardless of how dark a place can be or whatever the case, sooner or later someone's going to see you. And here's Peter, and the last thing he wants to do is be seen. He doesn't want anybody to recognize anything about him at this point because he's trying to blend in with the enemy camp, but he doesn't belong to the enemy camp. There's the problem. So can I say it this way? We kind of stand at the outside, and then we mingle, and then we mix, and then we merge. That's how that plays. We start with kind of at the outside, and then we mingle. You know what that means? Come on, let's face it. Some of us are social. We talk a little bit. Ha, 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 ha. And then somehow in that, we start mixing. We start, oh, okay, I'm going to pull a little bit of that out. Maybe I'll try to toss this aside, but I'll add a little of that into my life. And then sooner or later, we merge in with it. And at this point, Peter's sitting around. And imagine, here is this Galilean amongst a bunch of people from Jerusalem. In other words, he's a country boy sitting in a city group. And he's there. And he's trying to blend in, warm in his hands, and he's going to get nailed for it. And by this point, he is in trouble. Because everything is about him. And once you insert yourself into a place where you know you don't belong, and you're there trying to warm yourself by their fire, there's only one thing left. Let's take a look at the text. Verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. By the way, we'll talk more about that next week. And they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and he said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Of course, he spoke of himself, but they're trying to nail him on anything. And for the Sadducees who think that, this, that the uh, temple is the most important thing for Judaism, this was blasphemy as far as they're concerned. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, just like Jeremiah and Isaiah would promise. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Is it blasphemy if you actually are who they are asking? Jesus said to him, It is as you said. And I remind you, in Hebrew, a question and a statement are the same. It's all in your inflection. So he's like, You are the Christ, the Son of God? He's like, Oh, you said it. It is as you say. 
Nevertheless, I said to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they said, they answered and said, He is deserving of death. They spat in his face. They beat him. They, others struck him with the palm of their hands. And they said, Prophesy, it was Christ. We are the one who struck you. But now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And by the way, it's important to note, and we're really close to done. I just want to make sure that you know that so we can have communion. But I can't rush through this because I need this to hit my soul. John, as well, is in here. He's in this courtyard somewhere. I know that because Peter couldn't even get into the courtyard without John helping him. John was the one who actually talked to the girl at the door and told her, Oh no, this guy's with me. Come on in. Let him in. I wonder what John was doing this time. John never seemed to deny Jesus through all of this. He would certainly follow him, but from, he had to desert him first, but somewhere in it he winds up in this courtyard. Or did John actually wind up in part of near this council? There's some that believe he was actually related to the high priest. I really don't know. The scripture doesn't make clear. But we never read anywhere of John's failure. We certainly do have Peter's. Peter's inside. He's outside of that argument or outside of that horrible trial. Now Jesus is getting beat up. And this is the one who has the power to call down 12 legions of angels. This is the one who could have actually just disintegrated every atom in a person's body one by one, plucked them all out if he wanted to. And he takes it all. I'll be honest. I really don't know your situation, but I know mine, and I know about the fights I've been in. And if they were to be properly punished, they would be punished a lot like this. Peter's in the courtyard. A servant girl comes to him and says, you were also with Jesus of Galilee. And now Peter's got one last thing to do, and that's self-preservation. That's our last step. We get to the place where all we want to do now is survive. Because we're so focused on ourselves. And can I just say this? The moment you start focusing on yourself, pride and or fear will certainly be part and parcel with them. It is so much harder to be afraid of stuff. Now, I'm not talking about things like snakes or spiders or, you know, clown snakes or snake clowns. But I am talking about things like just the what-ifs. The stuff, to be honest, that you can't see. Because once you focus on yourself, you become keenly aware of the things that actually could happen to you that you wouldn't be thinking if your eyes were on Christ. It's amazing how disabling and paralyzing that is. So, so yeah, you were with him. And notice his first response in verse 7. He says, I don't know what you're saying. In other words, the first place he plays it is he's trying not to actually fully outright rebelliously sin, although clearly from God's perspective it is. But he's looking, he's like, no habla inglés. That's kind of what he's right. He's like, what? I don't understand what you're saying. You know? And the idea of it is he's kind of played off like maybe pretends like he didn't hear. You know, those kind of things when someone's like, hey, hey, aren't you like a Christian? And you're like, you know you're in a place where to say that everyone's going to laugh and point or like whatever. And you kind of know that. And because you're already in this place now where you're kind of feeling alone because you've been distancing yourself from God and from fellowship. So let's face it, you feel like you're standing there alone and the whole world's going to surround you, point and laugh. And so, they're, you know, they're like, hey, 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 didn't I, weren't you coming out of that church? And the strange thing is the way we saw that drummer come out of that adult place is the same way that other people can see you coming out of a church. How crazy is that, right? 
They're like, oh, well, then you must be a bigot and closed-minded and prejudiced. I'm like, huh, prejudice means to judge before you have all the facts. And you're saying that I must be these things. Don't see that, do you? Okay, well, in all of that, aren't you that? And you're like, they must be talking to some other Bruno. You know, that kind of thing. You know, And somewhere in all of that, we kind of play it off. But they're not going to, oh, Peter's not getting away that easy. So what happens? They went out. No, it tells us then. And when he had gone out of the gateway, you know what that tells us? That tells us Peter kind of got up and tried to walk away from that, is what happened, right? He didn't, I oh, look over here. And so he's just kind of trying to get away, as we would. That's part of our self-preservation, isn't it? Just try to walk away from danger. Danger is someone calling us out for what we are. When he had gone out of the gateway, another girl saw him, said to him, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, oh, I don't even know the guy. Now, how would they say that today? I imagine they just say, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And of course, it's amazing how they say that, right? They're like, oh, you're a serial killer. Oh, you're a terrorist. Are you a Christian? I don't know the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. A little later, verse 73, Luke 22:59 tells us that about an hour had passed. That's quite a bit of time. And it tells us a little later, those who stood up came up and said to Peter, we'll find out, by the way, it happens to be a relative of the person that Jesus whacked off their ear. You know, when somebody assaults one of your family members, I kind of get the idea you might actually remember their face. Well, they stood up and they said to Peter, surely you were one of them. Even the way you talk betrays it. I mean, Jesus is from Nazareth. He's ultimately, I mean, as far as where he grew up, he's from that small country area. He speaks like a country boy. Peter sounds like a country boy. He's got his overalls on, no shirt. That's kind of the idea. He's like, like, you're clearly not a city boy. Even the way you talk tells us that you're from the same place as Jesus. And it says, he began to curse and swear, verse 74. Now, curse isn't like he just started using the F word. Curse means anathema. He was actually saying, you know, like, think about how the way that people do that. Well, I swear on the soul of a nigamantoya, my father, you know, or whatever. It's like, I swear on my mother, I swear, I stick a needle in my eye, cross my heart. Hope. I mean, the things that we say, he's going, in those days it was simple. If I am lying, let me go to hell for that. That's what Peter's saying. That is at the point where he is at in his preservation. You really can't get more denying than that. And he's like, look, if I'm lying to you, then I'm willing to go to hell for this. And of course, he hears the rooster crow. Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to him. Satan wants to sift you, Peter. But he wants to sift you. But I've prayed, not that you wouldn't fail. You're going to fail. I, I know that. But that your faith wouldn't. Because if you trust me, you can trust this, that you're going to return. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. And I'm going to go and I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And we're going to work this out. But the next time you come, you will not come offering me your great strength. You'll offer me your surrender. The sense with Peter's greatest failure, his greatest regret, and it all seemed to happen in an instant, but it was clearly step by step. And they argued over who would be great. But I remind you, this came with promise. Even after your sifting, Peter, even after your sin, return to me. I'll be waiting. And I'm here to tell you, 
that if this is where you've been, and even maybe it's not that you're so deep in the world right now that you can't seem to find your way back, you found your way into church today and this is what you got to hear. I see you hear the same words from the Lord, even after your sifting, and even after your sin. Jesus speaking, return to me. I'll be waiting. And we've got two sides to this. The side of if that's where you're at, it's time to deal with it. It is time to get this done. But if this isn't where you're at, praise God, if this isn't where you're at, let us take the exhortations of where this all started. If we were to sit down with Peter at this moment, say, you've denied Jesus. You were at a place of self-preservation. Let's face it, survival is so selfish because all it's about is you not dying. How did you get there? Simple. You got there by inserting yourself first in a crew that you had to survive from. Well, why did you get there? Because you separated yourself from Jesus. You followed him at a distance. Well, how did you get there? Well, you started asserting yourself. Well, let me say it this way. You started satiating yourself by relaxing. Acting and without and, and sin by jumping into things because you laxed off when it could have just been you and Christ. And you know what that was like. When it was just intimate and beautiful. You know how that happened? Well, it happened because it started becoming all about you. When it became all about you, you looked around the world and everything looked different. It was amazing how much now... Well, it's amazing how much you were owed and entitled to. That a moment ago, you were just amazed that you got to be His. And I don't ever want to be in this place. I don't ever want to be in the place where... I mean, and I watched it. We, there was a time here, you were aware, that we had these cool shirts that said, Jesus, full stop. Jesus, period. And I watched people, they, they were all excited and they all got these shirts and all that. And then it was like, look it, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about those days like today where probably three or four shirts are going to happen for survival. But I mean, it was like, it was 25, it was 90 degrees, 80 degrees outside. And it was amazing how sometimes people were just making sure they were covering that up. Now look it, I'm not trying to judge because I understand the idea where it's like, you know that if you wear such a shirt, and I'm not telling you you're a super Christian for doing so, but you know what it's like where it's like, you know, look at, deal with it with your own heart as I would mine. Those places where you're like, oh, I know if I walk in with this right now, someone's going to probably be troubled by it. And there's two parts of me. There's the part that wants to survive and, you know, like wants to just be everybody's buddy. So it's like, and then there's another part of me that's like, shine that. Let's have some fun. And that's the part that I rather have because both are Peter. But that part that's the way you realize in a moment like that, yeah, someone's going to be troubled and then someone else goes, are you a Christian? And you say, what gave you that idea? And it's amazing how many times someone will come up to you like that because what they really want is for you to say yes. Because they really want to see somebody believe in something as strongly as the radicals do their thing. So this is what I want to pray for us. And then we're going to have communion and we'll dismiss. I want to pray first that if you are in this place, where at this point the best you are is some covert agent somewhere, where somewhere down the line, if they found out you were Christians, they would not only be shocked, they would be offended at your silence about it and feel betrayed and that's me too. If that be the case, let's deal with that. Let's get back to where it's about Jesus. On the other side of it, if it's the place where we're realizing as he brings us to wherever that is, to that center where he's at the center again, 
at that place where we could lay our lives down, take up our cross and follow him? Because if we did Matthew 16, this would never happen. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this text. I want to thank you for what you've done here in this time. I recognize we've gone long, but I don't know how to shorten this. And Lord, I, I just pray for every one of us in this room right now. If we've, if we've made that claim to call ourselves Christians, to accept the gift, Jesus, that you paid on the cross for our sins and your resurrection to promise us and give us a new life after. That when we surrender our lives to you, the one that you paid for at the cross, that the old man or woman is there left crucified. And in being crucified, now we can put ourselves in this place where there is a new life as a new creation, no longer under the tyranny of sin and no longer under the sway of the wicked one. But today... We want to live that life. And we confess to you, it is so easy to make this about us. To focus on us and get consumed about us. And in getting consumed about us, look at ourselves and feel entitled or look at ourselves and feel condemned. And even when we feel condemned, we feel that we're entitled to things. And then in our entitlement, we start easing up. We start nodding off. And as we start nodding off, our actions beyond that will never be wise. And then we start easing up in our way of following you, even in fellowship. And in easing up there, we find ourselves in a camp that we would never want to be in except to see change. And unfortunately, the only change we're seeing now is us. And it's not good. And we're trying to draw fire from the enemy camp. Sadly enough, the enemy camp here was still very religious. But it wasn't right. To the place where we do whatever we could to not be found out as a Christian at best. And yet, Jesus, you told us that whoever shrinks away, whoever denies you before men, you would deny before the Father. I do not want that to happen. And God, I don't want to live a life of cowardice, foolishness, and weakness. And I recognize my, my spirit might be strong, but my flesh is weak, and that's why you have to crucify it. That's why I have to reckon it dead. Not to seek to gratify it, but rather to walk in the spirit where you call me to. So I pray for every one of us in this room, myself included, that we would so abhor the idea of backsliding like this. That we wouldn't even get near the threshold of it. But Jesus, you become the center of our universe where you belong. Take the rightful throne. And be not just the center of our scope, but be the entirety of it. Your throne be at the center. And all that proceeds from it be all the way through our peripheral. And may we run this race to win it. We confess, Jesus, you as our Lord and Savior. Clearly, you showed total surrender. And in showing total surrender, 
We praise you for it. Thank you that it was that surrender that allowed us to see the power of your resurrection. May we live that too. Jesus, in your name. Amen.